This is Collins John, and you are listening to Fulham Focus Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Fulham Focus Podcast. My name's Matt Boisclair, and as the dust begins to settle on the latest Fulham defeat, there's little time to dwell as we look ahead to a daunting trip to high-flying Leicester City on Monday evening. It's the first of a three-match run where it's very difficult to see us adding to our paltry four points. Still on the plus side, UK lockdown phase two is almost over. We may even see a small number of fans being allowed back into football stadiums soon. So all is by no means lost. I've got Baldo and Don with me, so let's go. Fulham. Right, firstly then, lads, let's start with the encouraging news that we may be about to see fans return to football stadiums in small numbers. Stadiums in Tier 1 will be permitted to hold up to 4,000 spectators. Grounds in Tier 2 can welcome up to 2,000 spectators. Grounds in Tier 3 must continue to hold events behind closed doors, whilst grassroots sport is also allowed to resume in England. I believe at times the infection rate in Hammersmith and Fulham was quite high, so we'll have to wait and see what tier it reopens into. But to get a few fans in the ground is a start and could begin to start helping the team again, couldn't it, Baldo? Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting development and a you know no positive news on the whole that we're starting to get back to some level of normality, even if it's a small number of fans. But you mentioned there about you know Hammersmith and Fulham being quite high, and you know what is it? I think for something like that, it will just be down to what London is in. I don't see it being a case of it being broken down borough by borough. You know, I've I just literally pulled up. Uh, some stats here. It says Hammersmith and Fulham is, you know, roughly in the middle when it comes to on a borough by borough basis of, you know, infection rates alongside the likes of Barnet and Hackney and all that sort of stuff. You've got the high end ones like Newham, which is where West Ham will be and Croydon are roughly the same, but I don't think it'll be broken down like that. But on the subject of fans in ground, and I think this is something that I can't remember if it was me or Danny brought it up during the, uh, project restart you know preview thing i think it might actually be beneficial if fulham if fulham fans aren't allowed back into games because would you want to be a fulham player given the way that we've been playing recently and knowing that the fans are going to be allowed to be on your back because we discussed that we're a team that you know is frustrating to watch sometimes when we're passing the ball along the back you know three different times fans will get anxious and that can feed onto the players so i think it might be best for fulham players you know to start off with at least keeping trying to get some level of normality and trying to pick up some form without fans without them you know hounding them on their back for poor performances and then hopefully once things pick up and you know teams start to get uh, a decent run of form together then we can get fans back in well, let's be honest, though, it has hardly helped them so far, has it? We've, we've won one home game so far this season. So I, I'm not sure that it that will make a great deal of difference whether the, the fans are there or not, especially given that, you know, there is, it's going to be small numbers. But I just want to see, just I just want to see the world get back to some sort of level of normality and to start seeing people in the stadiums again would be a good thing for me. What about you, Dom? Yeah, although... Uh... You got to wonder about the cost of it all. You know, it, can, can the stadium or, or, you know, can Fulham or other clubs, can they afford to be paying for all the police security, the, you know, the stewards and all that stuff that's needed for just a few fans that isn't really bringing any money in? Well, we spent fuck all on players in the summer, so must have a bit of money in the coffers. Sure, sure. Well, uh, you know, 
while you're on this subject, I, I went online, I was doing some reading about the whole thing, and I was on the Friends of Fulham website. And uh, if any of you know uh, MJG on Twitter, uh, you know, he's also on Friends of Fulham. He, he made a little statement on there that I thought was really interesting. I'm going to read this. He says he's been sitting on the group or the council on which this issue has been discussing it. Uh, there's going to be a very limited amount of people that can actually be able to go to attend these games unless the guidelines on distances change. He said, you'll be looking currently only fans in the Hammersmith or Putney Inn will be lucky to be allowed in. That's like a thousand or maybe as low as 750 in each end of the stand. And the whole issue is apparently access, you know, the construction, the upgrade of the the stadium, the, the, the riverside and everything. So due to lack of space, access, wouldn't matter. You guys could only maybe have a thousand or seven hundred and fifty fans. I, I don't want to get too into the politics of this because we're a football podcast. But one thing that immediately springs to mind about this is that supporters of Fulham don't necessarily live in the borough. You know, I live in Reading. Baldo lives in Aldershot. Uh, Stato lives in Margate. Danny lives in Bexley. So if you had all these people go into Fulham to watch a game then they've got to pass through all of those all of those places en route to the ground, potentially, you know, pouring petrol onto the flame of this virus. Um, whereas you look at, I don't know, Newcastle, for example, all their supporters um, potentially from the same city um, or there or thereabouts. Not all of them, but you, you know what I mean. Um, so when they're going home after a game, then they don't pass through as many uh, different places as, you know, you or I would. So I, I think that that's got to come into it as well when you when you're considering getting supporters back into Craven Cottage. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's one thing needs to be considered, and I've been saying this more or less since all this uh, talk about fans and when it would happen in the something away fans are just going to be it's going to be a non-starter. I think the only fans that are going to be allowed in will be you know fans of the home team just so they can try and mitigate it to to some extent, like you know. Say it was say it was happening this weekend with Leicester. I know Leicester are in a, you know, in a high region of the country, sort of thing. They were one of the first to go into a local lockdown. You wouldn't want fans from a safer area, say the southeast, like you and me, Frenchie in Reading and Old Shot, going to a high risk area and then potentially bringing it back. So, and you can you can transverse it as well. You know, a Leicester fan, you know, if the game was a Graham College, bringing it back down, sort of thing. So, I think a. They'll try to mitigate that as much as they can. Away fans will be as little as possible. You can probably try to do it. There will be some form of ballot or lottery to determine. And, you know, first priority may go to those those are the nearest sort of thing. Again, just to try and mitigate this. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of steps and all these sort of hoops that need to be crossed before anyone knows what's going to, what's going to happen. And in all fairness, they need to sort it out quick because it really comes into effect, you know, as we record it, next Wednesday. So... Things need to be sorted out sharpest, otherwise they're going to be a whole, whole, whole bunch of confusion. It's a very difficult situation, and I'm, I am pleased that the, the government are trying to find a solution to it, and they're trying to get people back into stadiums because it, it has been a long time. But I, I just I, I see there being a lot of complications, and I don't think that you'll be able to please everybody, um, which, which you know is is what the government have faced all year anyway. Anyway, let's get things back onto football. Let's look ahead to this Leicester game on Monday night. Leicester are currently fourth with six wins from nine games and three defeats they've had against West Ham and Aston Villa at home, and then Liverpool away last weekend. 
Having won the league in 2016, do you have any idea what they're doing so right and we're doing so wrong, considering that, you know, not so long ago, they were a side that struggled as we do to stay up and, and really make an impact on the Premier League? You know, I, again, uh, I try to do some homework when I'm going to be on any of these pods. And I, I found this, uh, a couple of websites that talked about this. And it, it seems like all three uh, or everybody's in agreement that Lester had three things happen that really changed them. Number one, uh, they got really lucky when they found diamonds in the rough, you know, like obviously Jamie Vardy. I mean, they found him in the fifth division playing for Fleetwood town back in 2012 ish. So you would hope that Fulham could maybe do the same thing. Although it doesn't seem like we've had that kind of luck. Uh, Number two, they had the owners come in that conglomerate from Thailand with deep pockets and they seem to be really, really wanting to make Leicester city into like the next Manchester United, Manchester city, you know, make it into like a sixth or seventh of the top tier teams. So they're even doing an expansion. I don't know if you guys uh, heard there's leaked uh, plans online or pictures of what they imagine the stadium will be. And it looks grander, you know, very huge. The third thing is, you know, at that time, they got really lucky because we didn't get lucky with this one. They brought in Claudio, Claudio Ranieri. And by all accounts, he did a fantastic job for them. You know, uh, he he set them up with that counterattacking speed that Jamie has. We didn't really have that kind of counterattacking speed. He, you know, had them defending well in the back and they had some great defenders back there. So. By all accounts, you know, they, they did everything right or got every, lucky with doing everything right where we just haven't. So take it for what you want. I wish we could do the same thing. I take your point on uh, getting lucky. Um, you know, everyone needs a bit of luck, but, you know, you make your own luck. And you talk about the signing of J- Jamie Vardy from non-league. Um, you know, he had a, a, a normal job and he was playing for Fleetwood got spotted and then came in and hit the ground running and, and has had a fantastic career. Uh, one, of, one of the best players in the Premier League for, in the last few years, for sure. But the model that Fulham use, does it look at non-league players that are potential diamonds in the rough? Or do we just look at players who have already got, who are ready-made, who, who have the stats in, in certain divisions? I think they look at players in the, the lower tier leagues, as long as those players have got a thousand passes in one game and scored 50,000 yeah. goals. Exactly. This is my point. So our model's flawed. And I said it, I said it on the, on the podcast the other night and, you know, I was quite angry the other night as, as you may have, may have realized when, if you, if you listen to the show, but we're making the same mistakes time and time again. And the, the chairman sits there and watches it pass past his eyes and doesn't do anything. And, you know, if you keep doing the same thing, you keep following the same model, you're going to get the same result. And, Mr. Khan has been our chairman in three Premier League campaigns now. Two out of the three have been appalling, and we're currently, uh, what, like a quarter of the way through the third one, and it's heading the same way. So there's common denominators in this. You can't keep blaming the managers. You can't keep blaming the players. You've got to look at the chairman, and you've got to look at the chairman's son. And they get it right at Leicester. They've got a fantastic model there. Whatever they're doing, they're doing brilliantly well, and good luck to them. Fair play to them. We're not. Yeah, absolutely. I will say, you, you talk about the model there. I think they've 
they know what they they know what they want to be as a club, and they know that they're going to have to lose players over the time, and they've replaced them fantastically. You know, if you look at they lost Riyad Mahrez, you know, up comes Harvey Barnes. They lost Kante and Drinkwater. In comes uh, Hamza Chowdhury. They, you know, um, they so they know they lost Harry Maguire. In comes Suyonchu, if I pronounced that right. So they they have a you know conveyor belt of players that they can rely on to to fill those spaces. Whereas with us, you do think it's a case of you know we're taking a gamble on these things, whereas they seem to be investing a lot more in a lot more solid solid picks as well. And one other thing is they they have a model of consistency as well. You go back to the the league winning season, you know you can rattle off the starting. Most football fans can rattle off the starting eleven just because they came, just because they became so embedded in our minds because they're in in the news every week. Whereas with us. You don't know what's going to happen on a week-to-week basis. There's always constant chopping and changing of sides. And that always, you know, when we got promoted and the overhaul of, I think, only three players that started at Wembley in the playoff final, then started the first game against Crystal Palace. And you go back to consistency. It's something I've talked about many a time on this podcast. The best side we ever had was the Roy Hodgson side of, you know, 2008 to 2010, where you knew week in and week out, what the starting eleven was going to be every single time because we didn't change it. I agree with Baldwin. There, there is a lot of chopping and changing, but to be fair, I think some of that has to do with how unlucky we've been with injuries. You know, every time we turn around, somebody gets sneezed on and they're out for a month and a half. You know, or three months. So, I, I understand consistency, but unfortunately, I do think uh, not trying to defend Scotty or you know uh, Tony Khan or any of that, but. I do think there have been some unfortunate circumstances that, that, that they've had to deal with. Now, I, I know some people also say, well, they bring that on. You know, they don't do the medicals properly and they bring in these jokers that have known injuries that reoccur and reoccur. But it is a factor that, you know, they've had to deal with. For me, I think there's a problem with infrastructure off the pitch because you can talk about individual injuries and they happen to every club. But the fact of the matter is under Mohamed Al-Fayed, what were we in the Premier League for 13 consecutive seasons? And all right, maybe um, the money dried up towards the end, but we were we were still we were still operating well, and we were we were we were we still had a good model. But you know, since since the Khans have come in, they've it's almost like they've they've had a look at the model that was already there and thought we're just going to do something different here. Um, three managers in the first season, then. All sorts of chaos, you know. You, you look at that um, that five um, five person panel to pit pit the next manager after Felix Magat, um, which involved Niall Quinn. Bizarrely, it's just it's, it just doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason or structure to it, and it concerns me. It concerns me that somebody as senior as Tony Khan um, uses Twitter and falls out with fans on Twitter. It's just, it makes us a joke. And I know we've covered all this sort of stuff in the past, but I'm just trying to build the picture that Leicester don't do that. Leicester operate in a really professional way. And we're at the other end of the scale and we're at the other end of the table for it as well. You you mentioned, you know, the, the previous model that was used uh, before Shahad Khan, uh, you know, and Tony Khan got their holds on the, on the club. The, the model back then was slightly flawed, but, and I'll explain that, but I do think it would be a good model for Fulham now. Uh, what I mean by it was slightly flawed is back then, if you recall, the model back then was bring in all these players that have either fallen out from their clubs or their managers, you know, and aren't being played, 
or that are aging out of the game, you know, and are looking for somewhere to finish their career off. And it, it worked, you know, it was hodgepodge of players that were brought in and under Roy, you know, he made it work. He, he is, you know, extremely organized and he, he got the best out of those players and it, he took those players to unbelievable heights. So while I say it's a flawed model in, there's, there wasn't any really serious bringing of youth in. You know what I mean? There wasn't a lot of injection uh, of the younger players, you know, like we, uh, we're, we're starting to see currently. We've got a lot of players this year, at least, that have brought in that are 23 and, uh, you know, and stuff. We haven't had that in quite a while. So I'd like to see a combination of the two models, you know. I'd like to see some of the old guard experience players but obviously you know then we start talking about money we don't know how much money they're willing to spend and the younger players and and i think out of that hopefully we get a winning mix of not taking the the league by storm or anything like that but becoming at least for the next season or two a mid-tier team that is solid you know that we're not worried about relegation we're we're starting to think well are we going to maybe start getting into the europa league or something like that you know so I think it's got to be a combination model, personally. And that's the problem, though. The model is too rigid, and it, it needs to be more dynamic. And it would be great, you know, if, if we could bring in some more experienced players. We we signed Danny Murphy when he was 30, and Danny Murphy was one of my favourite ever players, and he he gave us some fantastic years. Exactly, exactly. And I agree with you. Uh, Danny Murphy is up there with one of my favorite players, and it's because he was a no-nonsense footballer. You know, not like a lot of people who fall over, flop, or argue, or get into fights, he, or get upset. He brought, he brought the experience into the side as well, well and that's with this exactly. current model, it's very difficult to get a combination of experience and youth. Uh, exactly. And, you know, I love people like Danny Murphy, and people would even you know, argue with me, but Scotty uh, you know, Parker, when yeah. he played, was kind of the same way. He he was no nonsense. You know, he didn't argue. He didn't go getting into fights. He didn't flop or anything. He got tackled. They mainly get up and they move on. You know, I'll never forget that that image of people like Brian McBride and Danny Murphy when they got hurt and they had blood coming down off their heads. They didn't fuck about. They they get up and they moved on until the, the referee or somebody said, "No, you got to get off the pitch." You know, you're bleeding. You can't be on the pitch. They just it wasn't in their DNA. To, to not play as hard as they could the entire game. Yeah, and that comes with experience. All right, well, let's let's come back to this game then. So, Baldo, will we see a return to the starting lineup of Mitrovic, Angisa, Loftus-Cheek? What I mean is, will we put out a proper starting lineup this week? Who would you pick, mate? Um, I'd put I'd put them all in because I know Scott Parker was talking about the internationals afterwards. You can't really use that that as an excuse this week because we've got not only do we have the week off, but we've also got the extra days we're playing on the Monday. So you'd hope that any you know fitness or rest issues. I know you, I know you have an issue with players needing rest, even though they're fit young athletes sort of thing. But if we want to use that that logic, you can't you can't use that excuse this week. So Mitrovic probably start Loftus Cheek after his. You know, brief cameo and arguably our best player on the pitch uh, against Everton. He probably starts as well in case of who, in place of who. I'm not 100 sure. And Angisa as well. You've got to think he's been one of our better players this season. So he so he probably uh, gets into the team as well. Probably him instead of Lamina. And for you, Don, would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I, I I do agree with that for the most part. Um, I, I I I hate to do this, but for me, 
I want to bring up some questions before that I think the fans need to be thinking about, or they probably already are thinking about before you can come up with the next lineup. There are some things that I think Scotty's got to figure out, you know, uh, number one, we're going to be going up against Manchester city and Liverpool next. Okay. Arguably, you know, top tier four teams uh, in the, the top four. So does he stick with his four, two, three, one, which he kind of favors or does he go really, you know, park the bus, uh, five, three, two, five, four, one, something like that. Um, so, you know, those are the kind of things that I, I, I think it's hard to decide. You know, uh, you're not, we're not Scotty. We, we don't have his mindset. We don't know what he wants to do. Number two, Tom. I hate to drop Tom because he's actually played, I think, pretty well in these last few games. I think he's had some really good matches. He's got stuck in a couple of different times and he's played some great balls, uh, you know, that led to some great attacking football. So for me, it's really hard to drop him. But I doubt you find a fan that could say, oh, yeah, well, you know, nothing happened really when uh, Loftus-Cheek came on. It was no big deal. Well, actually, it was a huge deal when Loftus-Cheek came on. I really think he changed the game a lot. And one of the things that he does that I was reading about and I, I could see in the in the match against Everton is he does really well in intercepting these balls in the back and then putting these beautiful passes forward that lead into something happening in, into the attack. So he's really a player that likes to play out of the back. He's not that player who's going to be uptight with, you know, Metro and be playing off of him and everything like a second striker. He's more of a player that likes apparently to be in the back and, and play out of the back and have space. So a, do you drop Tom and bring in, you know, uh, Loftus cheek or, you know, do you somehow make it work? Can you play Tom and Loftus cheek at the same, same time? The last thing I would ask is, okay, we're going to park the bus. I wasn't really impressed with Lamina and Reed Harrison Reed in the back. Okay. So do you bring back in Angisa and drop like Lamina? Cause I think Reed's the better defender there and do something a little different. These are questions I think that have got to be answered before we really come up with the next lineup. So for me, it's hard to say uh, what my next lineup would be. Do I bring in all those players that were on the bench? I personally would, you know, I personally would like to see, obviously we know the back four, it's always going to be the same unless what's his name uh, were magically fit. Uh, Congolo. Oh yeah. Forgot about you know, it. If he was fit, you'd like to see him get some minutes at least and see what he could do. But I, I don't well, know. This is the thing now though, because you're coming <laughs> up against a striker who's got eight goals already this season. How do we stop Jamie Vardy? I mean, he's he's quicker than anything we've got. And, you know, he, even he, he's well into his 30s now. What is he, 31, 32? He's, I, you know, if he became available, we wouldn't go for him because he's too old. Crazy. Okay. On that, how do you deal with that? Uh, this is just me. Um, you know, obviously, if I had all the answers, I'd be a professional coach somewhere making a lot of money and running a, a professional team. But I'm not. But this is me. I wonder if we're going to go ahead and I'm not a big fan of man marking, but let's say we man mark him. Okay. We need somebody with speed and who's got a, a, an engine like uh, Matt Dom has said in the past, like a Ferrari. We drop uh, Robinson on his ass, have him as more of the holding midfielder. Okay. That plays alongside Reed. And we bring back in uh, Joe Bryan out on the left. Okay. And that way we're not, well, we're kind of parking the bus, but we're not completely parking the bus. And the reason I kind of like Robinson being in there and him being responsible for taking on Vardy, A, to speed, but B, the counter side of that. 
I mean, what a great player having going forward. So you know, you've got Robinson, who's not afraid to take a player on 1v1, not afraid to cut to the inside and do something different. Whereas, you know, everybody's always expecting us to go wide and put uh, crosses in for Mitra. So people may say, oh, that's a crazy idea. You're, you're an idiot. But I personally, I don't think that's a bad thing. Drop Robinson in, let him take him on and see what happens. I guess the question is, has Anthony Robinson ever played in that position before? Or are you talking about like a defensive midfielder? He basically, he'd be taking Lamina's spot. And yeah. I don't think, I, I don't think that'd be a hard push for him. I mean, it's still a very defensive minded role we're looking to do against Leicester. You know, he's still on the, on the right-hand side. And again, the benefit is going into the attack. If we do have a breakaway, who better to have, you know, the speed to get up there into the attack and help a lone striker out like Metro or, you know, Bobby Reed or whoever it happens to be. So it's probably not that different uh, when we play Callum Chambers as a defensive midfielder um, against Liverpool that time in Slav's last ever game. Exactly. And that's going to be a revelation. Yeah. Could work. Could work. I, I mean, you know, I, I could I could certainly see some merit of it. Um, you'd you'd have to be a hard find to again if you're putting Joe Bryan because I know he's coming for a lot of stick this season. But putting Anthony Robinson defensive midfield, you know, you I mean, are there, are there, there can't be many worse ideas. And at this stage of the season, we may as well try every idea you can get. I, I can certainly I can certainly see it happening. Well, I could I can see I can see the benefits of it, but I can't see Scott Parker actually pulling the trigger on you know i i doubt he'd try it but think about it though you've got joe back there and and he can defend number one number two he also can hook up with Lookman. so if there is a breakaway you know he has great passing and great flexibility but also if you've got robinson sitting in front of joe and uh Lookman, so he's you know he's basically playing that holding midfielder like lamina would he can drop back easily if joe's caught out or something and help defend that so you basically, by doing this, you could have five in the back in a heartbeat, you know, and, and park the bus. I mean, these three games uh, arguably a free hit, aren't they? Because we don't expect to get anything out of these any of these games. So they're, they're a free hit. But if Scott Parker was to play Anthony Robinson as a defensive midfielder and it didn't work, then people would be calling for his head. There's no two ways about it. If it worked and we got we got a couple of points out of these games, then he'd be it's fine lines, isn't it? He'd be lauded a genius. But if it didn't, people say he's completely lost the plot. Get him out. And let's be fair here. Hold on. No matter what Parker does right now, I'm sorry, but I think in the next two games, everybody not everybody, but a shitload of fans are going to be calling for his head. You know, even more than they are now. You know, there's nothing that Scotty can do in my mind up against these two teams that people aren't going to be screaming, look what he did, look what he did. Unless he somehow gets a, a nil-nil draw or a 1-1 draw, I can just, I'm sorry, I think fans are going to still be calling for his damn head, sadly. All right, well, there'll be more of this in a moment. But first of all, let's go to a pre-recorded chat that I have with Danny about ex-Fulham striker Collins John. Collins John in focus. Fulham. Yes, I've got Danny with me for the next instalment of the Player in Focus chats. This week, we're going to look back over the Fulham career of Collins John. How are you doing, Danny? Hello, mate. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, also good, thanks. Well, Liberian-born Dutch striker Collins John signed for Fulham in January 2004 
from Dutch side FC Twente at the age of just 18 and was bizarrely presented to the fans by former Fulham midfielder John Collins at Loftus Road. What a gimmick, but hilarious. Were you there and do you remember that? Yeah, I was there and I do remember it. Only Fulham could do something like that, couldn't they? We did an, an interview. I, I did an interview for Fulham Focus with John Collins uh, a couple of years ago. And he said that the club invited him back as a guest and they just sprung it on him before kickoff. Oh, do you mind going on the pitch with our new signing? He's called Collins John. <laughs> very, very, very Fulham, I suppose. The um, interview that you did with John Collins, that was an audio one, wasn't it? That'd be on FulhamFocus.com. Yeah, well done. Good plug. Nice one. Nice one. Yeah, go and look it up. They're all great. All those, all those old interviews are great. It's always good to reminisce, which is why I enjoy doing these ones with you. Um, but particularly great when you've actually got the player to talk back over their time as well. So, so yeah, go and, go and check out the John Collins one um, where he talks about this. I mean, <laughs> Collins John only signed for Fulham because of a massive influence from Van der Sar. He was umming and ahhing about what career path to take next. He didn't know whether to stay where he was. I think there was a couple of clubs interested in him. And he spoke to Chris Coleman and he liked Fulham, but he, he hadn't committed to the move. And out of nowhere, he gets this phone call from Edwin van der Sar, who was obviously at the club at the time, telling him, listen, son, you need to come over. You need to sign for us. London's great. You'll love Fulham. Such a lovely club. I know you're young and you know you, you, you don't know the country, but I'll look after you. You can come around my house. My wife will cook you Dutch dinners and you'll feel part of it here. And he said he was sold on it. He said, you know, being a young Dutch player with the ambition he had, you listen to someone like Edwin van der Sar, who's, of course, a Dutch legend. Yeah, I just thought that was a good insight into what kind of person van der Sar was as well. He obviously cared. Yeah, just thought I'd I'd add that in there. I thought it was a, a good story. And I'm pleased that Collins chose for them in the end. I guess Edwin van der Sar could see that that was going to be a mutually beneficial relationship for Fulham and Collins-John, though, because Fulham were in a position where we needed some pace up front and needed something different. And Collins-John was was young and hungry and had good quality about him as well. Plus, he was looking for the next stage in his career and for some development. And having Edwin there at the time, it's just like everything was in the right place at the right time, wasn't it, for that to work for Collins-John? And like you say, what a top man Van der Sar was as well, because I guess he wasn't at Fulham for that much longer, another another year or so perhaps. But that worked out really well for everyone, I think. Um, but back to Collins-John, his Fulham career burst into life over Easter that season, when he firstly scored both goals coming off the bench to win the game at Leicester on the Saturday, then followed that up with another brace in the 4-3 defeat at home to Blackburn on the Monday. What do you remember about his performances in those two games, the ones that really announced his arrival in the Premier League? Just how excited I was. that We seem to have discovered this real gem out of nowhere. and I compared him to Ryan Sessegnon when we first uh, went into the Premier League uh, with Slav, and, and it was obviously Ryan Sessegnon's debut in the Premier League. Ryan, to me, at the top level, he did look like a boy playing against men, whereas... Collins John, at the same age, he was 18, he was strong, he was big, uh, he was quick. He had all the attributes you needed to become a top player. And his first finish was a delightful lob, wasn't it, from outside the box. Beautiful goal. The second one, he was in the right place at the right time to tap in Barmorte's cross. 
And then he backed that up with two goals in the first half against Blackburn at Loftus Road. I mean, I couldn't believe how well he, he took to life at Fulham. And he must have scored, because that Leicester game, he came off the bench for like the last 20 minutes. In total, he, he must have scored the four goals in about 60 minutes, which is just what a start for a teenager. I, I thought he was going to go on to be something really special because they tipped him to be the future Patrick Clivert. And after the start he had, you could see why he was built to have such a high-profile career. I was going to say he had a, an air of arrogance about him as well. And I think all good strikers kind of need that, almost like a selfish instinct. But his background and his history was quite humble. And, you know, they, he and his family fled from war-torn Liberia. And then he managed to forge a career in professional football. And, you know, he, he looked excellent when he first came on the scene. But I, I think, like I said, that every good striker needs that kind of arrogance about them. Of course they do. All the great players have that kind of arrogance. And is it arrogance or is it just confidence? It appears it's arrogance to us, but to have belief in yourself that you're going to score those goals, you have to have that arrogance, that belief about you that you're capable of doing it. And he did have the ability. Well, he got the opening goal of the game against Liverpool in October 2005 in the game I'll always refer to as the Johnny Haynes game as it was the game where the Fulham great was remembered after he sadly passed away just a short while before then. What are your memories of that day? Yeah, a sad occasion, but one that you'll never forget. Obviously, Johnny Haynes, doesn't matter what generation you come from, whether you saw him play or not, it's uh, embedded into our DNA that we know he is the greatest player in Fulham's history. And he got a very fitting send-off with a giant number 10 kit on the pitch. It was good that that game was against Liverpool as well, because Liverpool fans know how to behave in a situation like that, don't they? Yeah, I think Liverpool fans are good at creating atmosphere as well. And I think it it had the right tone to it. And it was the perfect send-off, I think, in the circumstances. And the lads on the pitch did him justice by winning the game. And Collins obviously scored the opening goal. And again, another plug, we've done an interview with Collins John. And I know scoring on an occasion like that meant a lot to him. Uh, he was very proud to give that win to the fans. So Collins John had a fantastic attitude, in my opinion. Yeah, of course, Boehm also got a late goal as well to seal the 2-0 victory. And I just remember the Hammersmith end all singing Johnny Haynes' Black and White Army after that second goal went in. It was, it was a great day. But as you say, all, all the players on the pitch did the Fulham legend justice that day with that performance. In November 2005, Collins had what might have been his finest moment in a Fulham shirt with the opening goal in the 3-2 defeat away at Middlesbrough, which was comparable to the Marco van Basten wonder strike in the final of the 1988 European Championships. Talk me through your memory of that goal. You take away the occasion, because I know the Van Basten one come in a major tournament, and our one was just a pointless game against Middlesbrough, but Collins John's goal was better for me. It was a brilliant goal. Uh, it's definitely the best goal of his Fulham career. When you see it from behind, it's just beautiful how it sort of curls into the top corner. One of the best goals Fulham have scored in the Premier League era, certainly in the top 10. 
it was the angle that made it special as well, wasn't it? It was such a, an acute angle and he's just put his foot through it and it's it's gone almost into the side netting on the other side of the goal. Just The keeper had no chance. If he'd have got a hand to it and saved it, it would have been just by pure fortune that, that he saved that because there's no way he saw it. It was, it was such a good goal. Um, that same season, Collins ended up as our top scorer with 11 goals and is only one of six players to hit double figures in the Premier League for Fulham. Well, you said it. The stats don't lie. I think when you look at the other players that are on that list, to, to finish the top goal scorer in any Premier League season for Fulham is an achievement in itself. I think people often assume that it was like a Balmorte, a Mal Bronk, a McBride, a Sahar that finished the top goal scorer. I don't think many people will remember that Collins John did it. And to score double figures, you know, he was only the third person to do it after Louis Sahar and, and Andy Cole. And only Mitrovic, Dempsey and Berbatov are also on that list. So there's not many players that have done it. I don't think he gets the credit he deserves. I think I read an interview with him as well where he said that he was disappointed he didn't get 20 goals that season. So he certainly was ambitious. And yeah, I mean, 11 goals in the Premier League is a great achievement. But I just wonder what could have been with him sometimes. Um, having scored 23 goals in 111 appearances in total for the Whites before loan spells with Leicester City, Watford and NEC, he left the club in 2009. What was your favourite Collins John moment? Well, he scored a, a wonderful goal on his birthday, funny enough, uh, away at Charlton at the Valley. It was a brilliant goal. It was on the volley, sort of on the turn and he volleyed it into the bottom corner. That was a really good goal. But... I think it would be hard not to pick the Borough goal just because it was such a an outstanding goal. Well, my job as host of these is to try and provide some balance. So I'm, I'm not going to go for the same one as you and pick the Middlesbrough one. But obviously that was an outstanding goal. Um, but for me, when he was relatively unknown and came off the bench away at Leicester that day, I think he'd had one substitute appearance before then. He came off the bench at Stamford Bridge because my memory, and I had to look it up, my memory was that it was his debut at Leicester, but it wasn't. Um, but when he came off the bench at nil-nil, Leicester were really struggling that season. And I think Mickey Adams was the manager at the time, actually. But they were on the verge of being relegated that season. Collins John's come off the bench. And that first goal that you spoke about earlier, where he's, he's lobbed Ian Walker, with, just with the outside of his boot, little flick over his head. It was, it was such a great finish. Um, and then to, to get the second one as well, side-footed it into the bottom corner in, in the uh, closing stages of the game to make it 2-0 and seal the victory. It's just a great all-round day for me. And not long before then, you know, we, we'd had great strikers previously. But Colin Strong coming in just made me think... You know, maybe we can replace Sahar with somebody who's quick and, and lively. And and I thought that Collins John might be that person. And I guess he was for a period of time as well. And playing up front with the likes of Brian McBride, a very different player, they complemented each other as well. So for me, it was that Leicester game just because it got me excited about a young, pacey centre forward at Fulham again. Funny enough, you, you mentioning about um, the Leicester game has sparked some memories for me, actually. So, like we said earlier, that period where he came on against Leicester and scored those two goals, then followed it up with the two goals against Blackburn. He then assisted Barmorte for 
I think my favourite ever Fulham goal when Barmorte run the whole length of the pitch at Loftus Road against Blackburn. And it was a lovely one too. Perfect assist. Without the timing and the weight of the pass, there's no way Barmorte scores that goal. But then Boa being Boa did quite an unusual celebration and crawled up to the, the corner flag and started peeing up against it like a dog. And Collins John jumped on his back and started riding him. You know, you couldn't make it up really. You just, yeah, yeah, just so so weird, but so so funny. And he also um, got involved with the Papa Boo Diop dance, didn't he, for the Man United goal in front of the cottage. So he was very likable, I thought, Collins John. He was very enthusiastic, like I said, and, and like a big kid. Funny guy, really, really top guy and, and someone that I, I speak to quite a lot now. Got a lot of time for him. Well, he currently sits in sixth place in the all-time Fulham rankings for Premier League goals with 20. Rate his career out of 10, but don't forget to factor in the fact that he never seemed to grasp the bloody offside rule. <laughs> yeah, the greatest offside player of all time, I think. He loved an offside, didn't he, Collins, John? But I think, again, that's his enthusiasm. I think he was so eager to play on the shoulder and get in behind and, and make those runs. But it wasn't even it wasn't even that type of offside. It's it's where the game had moved on, and he was still like lazily (laughs) jogging back with his hand up in the air and his thumb up, going, "Yeah, yeah, I'm offside. Ignore me." No, don't ignore you. You're the bloody (laughs) centre forward. Get your ass back and get onside. Uh, What a legend! Yeah, so he obviously had a a good start, like we said, uh, burst onto the scenes. I think even he would accept that he didn't fulfill his potential I thought he was going to go on to play for the top clubs and like I said he was billed as being the, the next Patrick Cliver and which is very very high praise um, and he never lived up to that so I think you have to consider that like you said he was top goal scorer a season which I think needs to be factored in uh, probably given seven seven out of ten I think Yeah, I was going to say the same, 7 out of 10, mainly for the same reasons as you. I guess it's points docked for not really going on to fulfil that early potential and just kind of tailoring off a little bit. But I guess changes in managers and that sort of thing all have an impact. But it's the same for every player. Yeah, it's just it's what could have been, really. That's the only frustration with Collins John. But for that early period, when he burst onto the scene, he was exciting and I loved watching him. So yeah, 7 out of 10 for me as well. Good stuff, mate. All right, thanks for that. Let's pass that back to the main show. Fulham. Right, so let's have a look at Stato's stats for Leicester City then. Our record against Leicester, Fulham have won 39 times, drawn 17 and lost 28, so we're marginally ahead overall. Um, We haven't played them that much in recent history. We played them in the... 2018-19 Premier League campaign where we lost 3-1 at the King Power Stadium. Uh, Floyd Ayite got the goal that day to make it 1-0 before Jamie Vardy got a couple of late goals and they ran out 3-1 winners. Aside from that season, the last time we played them in the league was the 2003-2004 season. Uh, Leicester were relegated that season. We won 2-0 away and Collins John scored the goals that I spoke about with Danny earlier in the show. Um, We then played them two seasons before then when they were relegated again. Uh, We drew nil-nil away that season. This shows that there's never been a a season in the top flight in the Premier League that includes both Fulham and Leicester where one of the sides hasn't been relegated. 
In 2001, 2002, Leicester went down. They went down again in 2003 and 2004. Then we went down in the 18-19 season. So hopefully we'll buck the trend this season, but that very much remains to be seen. The story of their season so far, they're in similar form to the form that they showed last season. They've won six out of their nine games so far. Their most recent game was that 3-0 defeat to Liverpool last, last week. They've got the added commitments of the Europa League midweek this season as well. Uh, they've currently won three out of their three games so far. They'll have to deal with their two games per week each week now until late January, uh, something that lower level Premier League teams like us obviously don't have to deal with. So it'd be interesting to see whether Leicester have got the squad to cope with that. Um, their stats so far this season, they've won just 50% of their home games this season, two wins and two defeats. Uh, they score on average two goals per game. Uh, they've only gone into halftime leading in a game twice this season. Five of their games have been uh, level at halftime. Their, their key players, as we've already mentioned, Jamie Vardy at the ripe age of 33. It's 33. That, that clears that up. He's showing no signs of slowing down with his with his eight goals in nine games this season. All eight of his goals have come in inside the penalty box and five of them have been penalties, uh, the majority of which he's won himself. Um, he's always had quite the talent for winning penalties. He, he knows how to play the game. Um, then you've got their uh, their centre-backs, Johnny Evans and Wesley Fofana. Both players are key to Leicester's successful five-at-the-back formation. Um, Evans is a vastly experienced centre-back, having played at Manchester United and West Brom before joining Leicester. He's 32 years of age and brings a good level of maturity to their defence, along with the 34-year-old goalkeeper and son of Peter, Kasper Schmeichel. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, 19-year-old Fafana was signed this summer from San Etienne for £30 million. Due to injuries, he's been forced into the first team and has excelled so far with 4.8 clearances per game, which is higher than any other Leicester player, and 3.6 interceptions per game, also higher, higher than any other Leicester player. Other noticeable shout-outs for Leicester is Harvey Barnes. Uh, the Leicester winger has scored two goals and got one assist this season. And James Madison, the attacking midfielder who scored once this season and got six goals and three assists last season. All right, so that's the stats. You know everything you need to know. What's the score going to be? I'm going to come to you, Baldo, for your score prediction, mate. Oh, I wish I could be confident, but the way things are going right now. And he, you know, we discussed this previously, but the Everton game was going to be our best chance to get any points out of this run of four and if we perform anything like we do against Everton I can't see us getting anything anything out of Leicester so it will probably will be a loss I'll say I'll say a 2-0 loss personally you know I'd be happy with that yeah if we could get a 2-0 loss to me uh that would be a positive (laughs) and I know that sounds funny or, or stupid but we're going up against a team that arguably could get four or five, you know, in my we're, mind. We're at a point now where I, I don't think it matters. That, I mean, we're, we're probably um, all accepting the fact that we're going to lose, but it's it's going to be the manner in which we lose. You know, if we lose 2-0, but they have 30 shots on target and we just play diabolical and, and, you know, we feel like we've got out of jail with a 2-0, then there's nothing to be gained from that. But if we put in a decent shift and we, we show some signs of improvement and some signs of encouragement, then that, it will potentially be the positive that we can take from it. But for me, I, I can't see anything less than a 3-0. I don't think we'll score. And I think Leicester have got too much in attack for, for our um, our shaky defence. So 3-0 for me. What do you reckon, Dom? What's, what's your prediction? 
I, I'm going to agree with Baldo. I'm going to pray for a two zero. Yeah, uh, and you know, I'm going to say, I'm hoping that a lot of work this week was spent on defense. I know we say that every week, but uh, you know, I, I was reading on the Fulham uh, main main website where Harrison Reed was saying that he thinks Fulham needs to become more streetwise. Streetwise. I'm not sure what that means in in Fulham, but you know, in America, I would think that means you know, we, we you you become more aware of your surroundings and you're, you're ready to knuckle down if you need to. So hopefully that happens this week and we can minimize the amount of goal damage, the the goal differential, because I think that is going to be the key to whether or not we stay up. All right, mate. Well, thanks gents for joining me. I'll be recording a match reaction show at full time on Monday with Matt Dom and Will Oakley. So that will be out first thing on Tuesday in the UK. I only hope it's a more positive show than the last reaction. Thanks as always to you for listening at home. Enjoy the rest of your week and speak to you soon. Cheers.